Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value when it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership, or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. You ready? Okay, we're real? We're live? We're live. <laughs> you love radio, don't you love it? I do, especially when it's taped. So it's been a while since we've taken um, listener questions. On a scale of one to ten, how much have you missed it? I'd say about two and a half, three. That's my Freakonomics friend and co-author Steve Levitt. He's an economist at the University of Chicago. I guess he doesn't love radio quite as much as I thought, but still, we wound up having a great time on today's episode, answering your questions. Questions about crime and punishment. As you take the knife and think about whether you're going to stab the person with it, you're not thinking about what's going to happen 15 years later when I apply for a job and I have to check the box. Questions about how to do the most social good. So that is one of the weirdest definitions of social good that I've ever (laughs) heard in my entire life. And questions about the price of a tiger's life. And he looked at me like I was crazy and he said, we can shoot the gun in the air, but we absolutely could never shoot a tiger. That's coming up right after this. From WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. So, Levitt, there's been some news at your university, University of Chicago, since we last spoke, some Nobel news. Yeah, my friend and colleague Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize in Economics, which has been uh, another joyous occasion on the University of Chicago campus, and especially nice for me because Stella and I have been close friends for a long, long time, play golf uh, together quite a bit, and uh, even uh, even had some a little spillover for me because uh, Golf Digest, uh, which I've always dreamed of somehow being written up in Golf Digest, well, <laughs> they decided they'd write up Thaler because he won the Nobel Prize and because he's an avid <laughs> golfer. So uh, I was able to tag along and uh, be the, the third wheel. And so maybe I'll get a brief mention or, uh, you know, come kind of a scrap in Golf Digest so I can cross that off my bucket list. So the moral of the story is you've wasted thousands of hours on instructional golf and you just need to get your Nobel and then you'll get your spread in Golf Digest? Yeah, exactly. All right, Levitt. So our first question today is from Jay Jones in Tennessee. Do you think people who use one initial are more typically male or female? I would say male, but 
it's hard to tell because they only use one initial. Mm. All right. Jay Jones from Tennessee writes to say, one of our local four-lane divided highways has been under construction for years. Typically, one of the two northbound lanes is closed. There's a full mile of signs and lights to warn drivers and cones slowly start to close off the one lane. I think we know where this is going, right? I don't know if it's Southern hospitality or what, but drivers will start merging into the open lane for a mile or more before the other lane closes. It's not uncommon to find the open lane backed up for several miles and the other lane standing empty long before it actually closes. And then, Jay Jones writes... I know the most efficient way is to use the zipper merge, where drivers fill both lanes right up to the merge point and then take turns merging into the single lane. Because I know this is the best way, I typically drive in the unused lane, flying past dozens of cars who look at me as if I'm cheating. I believe this behavior is called side zooming. (laughs) Jay Jones concludes, I am a very friendly and safe driver. And I believe my behavior is helping reduce traffic. If I am correct, why don't more people know about the zipper merge? So, Levitt, to me, I don't know if it's so much a question of why don't more people know, but a question of even if people do know, would they still not do it? What do you think? So let me just divert the, this question a little bit before we talk about the particulars of what Jay Jones has to say, which is we were just talking about Richard Thaler and uh, his Nobel Prize. And this is actually, I think, a classic example of where you need a nudge, where it's actually the problem here is is the signage is so terrible. So this is a case where, where people who are trying to do the right thing are doing the wrong thing because they're being told to do something. So just tell them to do something different, which is stay in your lane. Just, you know, all the sign would have to say is stay in your lane. Uh, a merge will happen in, in half a mile. And you get the exact same zipper. It would be more efficient. You wouldn't have any open lanes. And nobody would feel bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. So this is actually a perfect example of where public policy and a very simple public policy, which is just moving around a few signs, could actually resolve the problem and create tremendous amounts of efficiency and, and also utility, I think, because it's, it's not just inefficient. It's incredibly frustrating when people are doing side zooming. And what's your personal stance on the morality of side zooming? I tend not to think of the world in very moral terms. I tend to think of the world in terms of efficiency terms and in terms of prices and whatnot. But I have to say the one place where I exercise some morality is when I'm driving the car. And at some point in my life, I just decided that I wasn't going to be a side zoomer. And it's funny. It's a very tenuous morality because if I'm in a taxi cab and he's side zooming, I'm happy. I'm, I'm glad that the onus of the misdeed is not on me. I'd like to get there faster. But um, I just found it easier for myself, rather than every time I got in a situation to try to make a judgment of whether I should side zoom or not, to simply say, it's not who I am. I'm not a side zoomer. I'm, I'm just going to do the right thing. Yeah, but let, let me ask you this. According to the Federal Highway Administration, um, the zipper merge, or what's called late merges in the traffic literature, that they do work, that they cut down a lot on overall congestion. So really, in your urge to be a moral person, in this case, in the side-zooming case, you're actually part of the problem, not the solution. Doesn't that make you reconsider? (laughs) It doesn't even take a traffic authority or a physicist to know that if you are leaving half a mile of one lane empty, then you're slowing down everything, yes? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing you want to do is, I think, 
from a public policy perspective, is not put people's identity and the morality in conflict with efficiency. So getting back to Jay Jones's actual question, if I am correct, he or she wrote, why don't more people know about the zipper merge? So maybe we would change that and say, why don't more people, you know, use that side zooming, use that second lane and do it? What's your overall answer to Jay Jones and for why people don't do it? I think in his setting, it's socially costly to be zooming past people when you don't want to be that kind of person. Socially costly because people will maybe shoot you a look or honk their horn at you? You know, you're taking advantage of other people. You're putting yourself above other people by every car you pass is, is waiting a few extra seconds because you passed them. And I have to admit, there was a time in my life where I, I wanted to be the kind of person who did that. It was fun. I got a little bit of joy out of the uh, the whipping by on the, the right lane. But then at some point, I, I changed. So if Jay Jones is the kind of person who says, look, I know that I'm doing the right thing for everyone, and it's even more right for me, and he or she is willing to absorb that social cost, you have no problem with it. It's just that that's not who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I have no real problem with the individual. So I understand when people pursue their own incentives. Um, What I have a problem with is when the structures of society breakdown, and it allows people who are exploiting other people to be able to do that uh, without any punishment. Okay, Levitt, next question is from a listener named Bruno Heepers in Pittsburgh. Here we go, Steelers, here we go. And Bruno wants to hear about what he calls, quote, the dysfunctions of the academic job market. So he writes, the academic job market is quite odd. It does not seem to adjust to supply and demand forces as other markets do. Some even compare it to a Ponzi scheme. Despite the very limited job openings every year, PhD programs accept many graduate students who are paid very modestly to operate labs and do research for faculty members. As is well known, grad students' job prospects are poor. In some areas, the prospects are worse than others. There's also, he writes, the likely impact of tenure in this market, working as an incentive to pursue a career in academia, but also discouraging faculty retirement and the opening of new faculty posts. So in spite of that, he writes, universities keep admitting many new grad students every year. Moreover, many people keep applying for grad school despite unpromising job prospects. There seems to be no change in sight. The status quo seems well entrenched. Therefore, here are his questions. What is going on? Why is this market structured this way? How does economics explain it? Is the academic job market really a Ponzi scheme? Should PhD programs accept... Okay, Bruno has a lot of questions. Should PhD (laughs) programs accept fewer grad students to adjust to limited job availability or not? What could or should be done to reform this market? So, Levitt, I can think of few people more qualified to answer those 1,800 questions than you. Okay. I think there are two possible explanations for what's going on. The first is that, in general, people are incredibly over-optimistic about their own ability and talent. So this is true not just in PhD programs, but it's true on the basketball courts across America uh, and the set of people who move out to Los Angeles thinking they're going to be star actors and actresses. There's just a lot of optimism among some people about how talented they are and the belief that they can overcome the odds. And, of course, by the time they get to graduate school, I think they'll find out that that there are 30 other people who are exactly coming from the same position that they're coming from, uh, and and the odds of success are quite low. Okay, But I think that's only a small part of the conundrum, the puzzle. I think the real fact 
is that for the set of people who are going to get PhDs in subjects like history or Latin, there's just an enormous consumption value associated with the pursuit of that PhD, that the you know, relatively meager wages, but enough to survive, while you study the thing that you love with a great amount of free time and autonomy, with the hopes and dreams that you will be a great uh, academic in time, all of that is a very fun, exciting thing to do. And if people love doing it, then, you know, you can't criticize the universities for offering them the spots. So you're part of the Ph.D. industrial complex. You get students who want to get their Ph.D. in econ at Chicago. Do you feel a little bit guilty about being part of that machine, especially when you're the tenured one sitting back there with essentially no risk? <laughs> no, I've never, I have not felt once guilty. What was about I thinking being... of asking Steve Lev if he <laughs> felt guilty about anything? That's not your way. I apologize. It is true that I try to talk almost everybody out of a PhD program, except for a very rare set of people. And those set of people either uh, have such an amazing talent or excitement or passion for doing research, or they're so socially inept that they really couldn't function outside of academics. So going back to Bruno's question, other than try to dissuade everyone who comes into your office from actually getting the PhD, what should be done to reform this market? So I think information cannot hurt. So if it were required that entire disciplines or perhaps individual schools within disciplines would report uh, the how many people enter each year, how many uh, eventually graduate, how long it takes them, and what jobs they end up doing, because then at least people would be making informed choices. I really don't think that if informed people are saying they want to do something, that a university should say, no, I think it's immoral to let in people who really are going to enjoy this program, even if they don't think it will be the most valuable career-enhancing experience along the way. <laughs> in other words, if you're smart enough to pursue a PhD, you're smart enough to know better. I love that. That's perfect. All right. So, Levitt, next is a question from Mike Moore from Corinth, New York, which is in Saratoga County. And I believe it's known as the snowshoe capital of the world. The subject line of Mike Moore's email is doing social good with spending. And he writes, if I have $100 in disposable income per month, what can I do with it that will do the most social good if social good is defined as the maximum number of people in the United States who will see those dollars in their paychecks before their dollars leave the country for the first time. Uh, I'm right. going to read that part again for emphasis. He writes, if social good is defined as the maximum number of people in the United States who will see those dollars in their paychecks before the dollars leave the country for the first time. And he goes on a little bit. And let's just stop there, though. Okay, so that is one of the weirdest definitions of social good that I've ever <laughs> heard in my entire life. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, why would you define social good, say, stopping at the border? I mean, what it implies is that you care only about Americans, and in some sense from the question, equally about all Americans, but not at all about anyone who isn't an American. And and indeed, look, I think we actually have a little bit of that behavior. I think we do draw lines of us versus them. But I think that is a particularly difficult social welfare function to to think is the right one if you're talking about 
doing social good. So how would you encourage Mike to think differently about his question, or do you just want to answer his question straight up? So to be honest, I don't know the answer to his question. It's it's macro in some sense. It's this really complicated idea about money multipliers and, you know, it interacts with the banking system and the Federal Reserve, and it has to do with the speed at which money circulates. I, I think it actually reflects a belief that the economy is very much driven by what we call the demand side, that if people just spend, 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 it's a very Keynesian view of the world. And I just don't think it's exactly the way economists think about the world. There might be somebody who knows more about it than me who would say it makes sense. But to me, it's one of those things that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But a lot of macro doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So let's just say, instead, the question we're trying to answer is, if you just want to help the world as much as possible through an investment of $100, how would you allocate that $100? And it seems to me that a logical place to start is you want to help the super poor, that um, that the really poor are the ones who uh, will get the most benefit from an additional dollar worth of, of good things happening to them. And you're not going to find really any of those people in the United States. You're going to have to go far away to, to find those people. And then once you find them, it turns out it's just not that easy to figure out what to do next that is really helpful. Right. But let me ask you, you're kind of sort of implying that Mike Moore is a little bit, if not xenophobic, at least narrow thinking, that the idea of social good is more valuable if it touches those that you see or know or or are kind of like you. But on the other hand, you know, given the history of humankind, the way that we care about some people more than others, is there anything so terribly wrong with his constricting his definition of social good as people who, like me, live in America? You know, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's odd. It just strikes me as odd. But, I mean, economists believe that... um, People can have whatever preferences they want, and we don't really make judgments about preferences. Certainly, I understand how you might put America first or your own town or really easier to understand, even your own family would be a, certainly a justifiable thing. And, and clearly, we know that a lot of people think like that because most of when, when people die, they leave most of their money to their family, very little to the people in Bangladesh and you know, not so much money to the poor in America. So I think actually what he's talking about is not unusual. It's only unusual when you couch it in terms of wanting to do what's socially good. You, you got a little more in you? Sure. Coming up after the break, questions about the efficacy of, respectively, bear spray, realtors, and the death penalty. So, yeah, I think the death penalty is purely at this point a a political beast and not a crime reduction tool. That's next, right after this. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. 
No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So, You need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. So Levitt, one more question for you before we get back to our listener questions. The Booth School at the University of Chicago runs this uh, survey where they ask economists from many universities their take on policy issues of the day. You, you don't participate in that survey, do you? No, I don't. But you know about it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is from the Washington Post recently. I'm curious to know your thoughts. This is from back in May, actually, before the Trump administration announced the the outline of a tax reform plan. President Trump's administration says his tax cut will pay for itself. It turns out it's really hard to find an economist who agrees. The University of Chicago's Booth School of Business regularly polls economists. As I said, in a survey the school published on Trump's tax plans, only two out of the 37 economists that responded said that the cuts would stimulate the economy enough to cancel out the effect on total tax revenue. Okay, so granted, it's a fairly narrow question about being revenue neutral. Those two economists now both say they made a mistake and that they misunderstood the question. (laughs) I screwed up on that one, said one of the two economists, Kenneth Judd. I meant to say that this is a horrible idea, a bad idea, no chance in hell, but I guess he checked the wrong box. Then the other one was uh, Bengt Holmstrom of MIT who confirmed in an email to the Washington Post that he also had misread the question. So if you have essentially 37 out of 37 economists who are fairly heterodox in their, you know, conservative, liberal, uh, Dem, Republican lean from what I can tell. Should that indicate to us that on that measure, at least, a revenue neutral tax plan that we should be wary? Absolutely. Although there's a lot of discussion about how economists are always fighting with each other and disagreeing, I actually think the the overall agreement among economists on, on a broad set of questions is, is very, very large. And I think that the, the Booth School survey actually shows that, as this particular question does. Now, whether the economists are right or not, is another question. But I think there's a lot of experience with incredibly optimistic forecasting done by political hacks who are trying to get their particular policy advanced. And, you know, if if I were one of the economists doing this particular survey, I, I would have been the 38th out of 38 to say <laughs> that this thing's not going to pay for itself. 
the 38th of 38, meaning you would have understood the question, though, at least. Well, I, I, who knows? I might have hit the wrong button, but <laughs> but if if context by the Washington Post, I would have said exactly what Bank said. All right. So let's see if you hit the right button on this listener question. This is coming from Ryan, who's from Sandy, Utah. Ryan writes to say, my question is, how has the internet not killed the market for realtors yet? As a middleman, realtors connect sellers with buyers because they have access to a huge database, MLS, or multiple listing service. But one thing the internet is best at, making information accessible, has created efficiencies that have decimated other middlemen industries, such as travel agents. So why is it still the norm to pay tens of thousands of dollars per home in commissions to realtors? I've tried to find answers, writes Ryan, but it's extremely hard to find unbiased info. Parenthesis, everyone has a relative who's a real estate agent. Um, so, Levitt, before you answer the question, why hasn't the disintermediation of the Internet and the digital revolution generally worked on the real estate business? Uh, maybe you could just start by summarizing your research on real estate agents that we wrote about way back in uh, 2005 in Freakonomics. Sure, a long, long time ago with Chad Severson, I did some research on real estate and the somewhat perverse incentives that real estate agents face could lead them to not give the best possible service to their clients. And in particular, when a real estate agent sells a house, they do take a commission, but by the time that commission is split between the buying and the selling agent and their respective companies, that to the actual pocket of the agent goes only 1%. And so what happens is since the agent has to do most of the work and actually is responsible for paying many of the fees associated with advertising and whatnot, the agent in principle should be um, really eager to make a sale, even if the sale is not at the highest possible price. And that's just a simple fact of the way the incentives are set up. So that explains why the incentives of an individual agent may not be aligned with the incentives of a home seller, right? But it looks like the average commission rate nationwide on home sale transactions as of 2013, latest number I see here, it's still 5.4%. So that's still an awful lot of money to be paying for what a lot of people would argue is a relatively small amount of work, or I guess an easier way to put it is if you, if you end up paying a hundred or $50,000 commission on the sale of an expensive home, if you were to divide that into an hourly rate, your real estate agent for that one sale at least is getting paid an awful lot per hour. So why does this model still predominate? I'm not exactly sure. I think that the most likely explanation is what an economist would call the, the two-sided nature of the, the real estate market in the sense that there's a, an agent who represents the buyer and an agent who represents the seller. And so the question is, if I didn't have an agent, could I have gotten a home cheaper? So what I might do as a buyer, as I'd say to the seller's agent, hey, you and I both know that if I had my own real estate agent, you would have to give 2.5% to that agent. So how about we work out a deal where out of your own fee, you give me some money or, or you, you bargain harder you know, with your own client so that you like get me a better deal or some way I can get some part of that 2.5%. So that sounds totally sensible. It also sounds like it might put the seller's agent in a slightly illegal position. So I don't know about legality. I do know that the last time I bought a house, I exactly uh, did, did that? Yeah. try to so did I, go actually. ahead and say, 
And you know what was interesting is the the seller's agent actually said, you know, I don't want to be caught in some kind of moral bind, so I'm going to have one of my friends serve as your buyer's agent. <laughs> of course you uh, are. And so right. there, there isn't any worry about uh, conflict of interest because I want someone representing you. But that's also giving their friend a big envelope of cash, essentially, right? I wanted them to give the cash to me, but they wanted to give it to their friend instead. I'll tell you, what I'm surprised by is the way of providing services by realtors that come in the form of a percentage of the house price. That's the thing that, to me, seems to make less sense in that agents do all sorts of things that have tremendous potential value to both buyers and sellers. They tell you what your home is worth, how to prepare it. They do advertising. They do open houses. They do negotiating. They, um, you know, they, they find clients. They do all sorts of things. They put you on MLS. And all of those things you could imagine being you Just know, charged a la carte. Uh, a la yes. carte. Right. Yeah, a la carte mm-hmm. or the, by the hour. So here are some BLS uh, data for total median pay for real estate agents and brokers in the U.S. is r- in the neighborhood of $46,500 a year or $22 an hour. So theoretically, if you could hire an agent directly for $25 an hour, which is not very much, certainly would pale in comparison to what you pay in overall commission, it'd be win-win because you're going to end up paying a lot less Presumably, I would argue, then you would if you're going for the whole full Monty commission structure. Yeah, the thing, though, that's left out of that argument is that a very small share of the time that agents are actually spending being real estate agents is actually representing clients. That, that the overwhelming activity that agents do is trying to find clients. And so, you know, the fact that they get paid $25 an hour, you know, means probably they're getting paid you know, if if only say twenty five percent of their time is spent actually working on behalf of clients, they'd have to charge you a hundred dollars an hour. Now that still might be much cheaper than the commission you pay if you do a a high priced property. Hey, Levitt, here's a question I think you'll like. Actually, kind of two related questions. First one comes from Marvin Young, who is a statistical clerk with the U.S. Census Bureau. He writes, with policies for tough-on-crime, mandatory minimums, and application checkboxes, I'm curious about the economic impacts of how we rehabilitate felons and some misdemeanor offenders. Levitt, you've thought about this in the past, yes? Yeah, I sure have thought about that. I mean, these are important and hard questions. Almost everyone who gets sent to prison is going to come out of prison. And it's really tricky to know what to do, both from the perspective of public policy, but also from the perspective of individuals, say people in an HR department who are in charge of of doing hiring and deciding, should I hire a convicted felon? And now with with the availability of databases, it's very easy to find out who's been convicted of various crimes and whatnot. And I think that the evidence suggests that the... The stigma associated with a conviction at some time in prison for all but the lowest skilled workers is is pretty high, pretty pretty costly. Um, the punishment you pay, not just while you're in prison, but in the labor market after you emerge from prison. Given that the punishment is relatively high, um, do you think it acts as a deterrent on some would-be criminals? I'm not sure we have so much evidence on it. It's a hard question to figure out how to answer smartly. I do have a general belief that when you make punishments worse in ways that 
people can see, then uh, people respond to it. So I would have every reason to believe that there is a deterrent effect. Could you um, just as easily think that the kind of person who is most likely to commit that kind of crime is just not the kind of person who's going to be thinking long-term enough about the punishment in the labor market after prison? Well, I do think most violent crimes are committed under the influence of alcohol or drugs and, and you know, you're in a fight or angry, whatever. So you can imagine that you're not thinking as you take the knife and think about whether you're going to stab the person with it, you're not thinking about what's going to happen 15 years later when I apply for a job and I have to check the box. I mean, that's not in the forefront of your mind. But on the other hand, I suspect that there's an ethos of of general thinking about I cannot rob somebody because if I get caught for armed robbery, my whole life is messed up. And you also, you've argued in the past, I'm curious if this is still your view or whether there's any data that's changed it, that the death penalty as practiced in the United States is wildly ineffective as a deterrent, as a crime deterrent, because it's too distant, takes too long, and just doesn't happen often enough for it to actually be um, enough of an at-the-moment deterrent against that kind of crime. Yeah. If you're a reasonable calculator of costs and benefits, you should not be deterred by the death penalty in the sense that there's something like, I don't know, 12,000 homicides in the U.S., and there's something like... I don't know, 20 executed. So your chances of being executed if you commit a homicide are essentially one in a thousand, but it comes with a delay usually of 15 or 20 years. And so if you compare it all, the disutility of um, you know life in prison compared to 15 years in prison followed by being executed, and you, you multiply that by one 1,000, it just, it just shouldn't matter at all. The likelihood of dying if you're in a drug dealer on the streets is higher than your likelihood of dying if you're on death row um, because the streets are dangerous and it's hard to get killed when you're on death row. So it, it all, I think, in, in that regard, uh, yeah, I think the, the death penalty is purely at this point a, a political beast and not a, a crime reduction tool. Here's a related uh, question from Jimmy Derringer, who's a real estate investor in Spokane, Washington. He writes, my question is, if you could do one thing in a city to reduce crime, specifically violent or drug-related crimes, what would that be? Well, so I'd say Jimmy's asking exactly the right question, that when you're thinking about crime in a city, that crimes that have a lot of costs are the are the violent crime. And and when you say drug-related crime, I think he really means drug-related violence. And I think those are exactly the kinds of crimes that we might be able to have the biggest effect on. I'm not saying the right answer socially um, would be to do what I'm about to say, but I think in terms of reducing violence, it is by far the single most powerful tool we have, which would be to simply legalize drugs. especially cocaine, a lot of the violence around uh, in in the big cities, at least the ones that I've been in, have been around crack cocaine, uh, cocaine more generally. So I think very effectively and quickly we could dramatically reduce violent crime through the legalization, not just, say, of marijuana, but of, of all drugs. Now, I think actually that would be a bad idea in general, but but I think for solving crime, that that to me is an obvious and clear path to some success. So you say that would be obvious and clear and pretty drastic, right? Like on the spot it would work. But that would be nowhere near as drastic as, for instance, 
if you change the death penalty, right, and invoke the death penalty for like any violent crime and you execute people pretty much on the spot, kind of Philippine style. And that would, if you want to do one thing to really reduce crime, if the, if the sky is the limit, wouldn't you go more in that direction? Um, I mean, we could just kill everybody before we start if we want to make sure there's no well, there's crime. there's that. There's that. Okay, so Levitt, here's a message from a listener. We'll go ahead and play it on tape. My name is Rob Eaton. I live in Rexbury, Idaho. I'm a professor of religious education and an administrator at BYU-Idaho. As I was hiking near Grand Teton National Park recently with my bear spray, I was wondering about the protocol for what you do when you encounter bears and whether there's any data behind this protocol. You certainly can't do randomized clinical trials, not even with college students, for seeing what works when you encounter a grizzly bear. So how do we really know? So Levitt, I love this question. It's about real, you know, evidence, cause and effect. And I know that you're, um, you're a real outdoorsman, aren't you? You, you. Uh... <laughs> I have. Um, I have to admit that I have once in my life, while walking a very short part of the Appalachian Trail, carried bear spray and rung a bell from time to time uh-huh, to yeah. tell the bears I was on my way. Yeah, and, and it worked out. You, you weren't eaten. I was not eaten. I'm fond of Rob's question because it is one of those things that uh, if you're going in the woods and you're thinking about bears and someone tells you, use bear spray, who am I to know whether that makes sense or not? I think that what the economist question would be is, so given the choice between a bear who's standing on the path and one who's just been sprayed in the face with bear spray and is really, really angry at you right now, which is a better situation? And I I think among people, it's not completely obvious. It's not completely obvious that you want to spray really mean people in the face with, um, you know, with pepper spray. Now, it may be that pepper spray is so effective that that it really does completely stop them. And my hunch is that bears probably don't attack people after they've been sprayed. But but that would be the kind of question you'd worry about because you can spray a bear in a cage and see if a bear likes this stuff or not. And I'm sure somebody's done that. But it's a little harder to, like, you probably don't stand in the cage with the bear when you spray him to see whether after he's been sprayed, he goes and huddles in the corner or he tries to eat you. Well, you are right that someone has tried. A zoology student years ago named Gary Miller saved a male bear whose name was Growly, um, who was slated for <laughs> death and used him. This was a research project in 1977. And uh, he he used a bunch of different things to see what what Growly did not like. And uh, dog spray was the first apparently successful one. And then the experiment was conducted on four other bears. And then another student named Carrie Hunt tested a range of prototypes of bear spray as part of her master's thesis at the University of Montana in the 1980s. And apparently it does work pretty well. Do bears ever hurt anyone? Honestly, like we hear about shark attacks, even though you and I have written a lot about how, how sharks like never attack anyone. But, but unless you're a total idiot and you like have food in your tent, I, do bears actually bother anyone? Well, here is a site uh, based on newspaper accounts collected during 1985 to 96, so not very new. Brown bear attacks resulted in 2.75 human injuries and 0.42 deaths per year in Alaska. So Alaska alone half a death a year. Here's Yellowstone as an example. Um, since 1980, over 100 million people visited Yellowstone National Park. During that time, 38 people were injured by grizzly bears, which is a subspecies of the brown bear. So it's not nothing. 
It's pretty close to nothing compared to I can't. <laughs> what does a can of bear spray cost? I, I think a can of bear spray is not cheap. All right. To your point, more people die in the park from drownings, burns from hot springs, and suicide. Not so surprising, suicide being a, a leading cause of death in the United States. So your answer to uh, Rob's question is, don't worry about it. That's your answer to the man who's asking whether bear spray works? Yeah, so I think Rob was asking a slightly different question, which was, in a world in which we can't do randomized experiments, how do we know what works and what doesn't? And I think what your discussion pointed out was a pretty sensible thing. Like, sure, I can't do a randomized experiment, but if I got a bear in a cage and I spray him in the face and then I spray four other bears and all four of them are very unhappy and lie down on the ground uh, moaning afterwards, it does seem like pretty good evidence that bears aren't going to like this. Uh, but like the economic part of it, which is interesting, is how then this turns into an industry um, where you put some stuff in a can that probably costs like 25 cents to produce. And then, you know, sensibly you charge high prices because people are terrified of bears and you multiply that out. And yet nobody was ever going to get attacked by a bear in the first place. This citation I'm looking at says that bear spray is better than guns for fending off bears. People who had firearms on them during a close encounter with a bear had the same injury rate, 56%, regardless of whether they used their firearm or not. Does that surprise you? So the implication sounds like if you shoot a bear, the bear keeps on running at you. But if you spray him with bear spray, they turn around. Well, either that or you missed. Or you missed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but I, it also wouldn't maybe surprise me that if you shoot a bear, they do keep running because mm -hmm. they don't exactly know... Um, what happened, but but when you get sprayed in the face with stuff, it hurts so much you can't even think about it. It's a good question. You know, I had an interesting, this is a little bit unrelated, but when I was in India, I went to try to see tigers in uh, one of the national parks, and we got to talking about guns and, and tigers, because uh, I, I asked him, uh, they did carry guns. The tigers? Oh, not the tigers did not. <laughs> the rangers carry the gun. And so so I asked the guy if he ever had had to use a gun against a tiger. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, we, we can't. We could never. We can shoot the gun in the air, but we absolutely could never shoot a tiger. And I said, well, what if the tiger was, like, eating me? And he said, no, I mean, the tigers are more valuable than people. Mm. <laughs> and um, and it's only after a tiger has eaten three or four people that we then would relocate the tiger to a place where there weren't so many people around. But it was, it was really interesting to hear it because it was a very different perception about the relative value of humans and animals. So I, I said to the guy, you know, surely you must value the, the tourist life higher than one of the, the local people's lives, don't you? But he very clearly suggested <laughs> to me that, no, tourist lives were still uh, nothing near the value of a, a tiger's life. <laughs> Did you think about trying to get hold of his gun if you encountered a charging tiger? You know, the, despite the fact that we bounced around for eight hours through this wildlife uh, park. No tigers. The int uh, not a, no tigers. We saw one animal the entire time we were there. We saw the the butt of a deer running into the the underbrush in eight hours. So this price discrepancy between the U.S. and India in this case and the value of a human life compared to a tiger, how do you think about that discrepancy? Is there a, quote, right way to price a human life in that context? Uh, pricing human life is just hard. Um, and I don't think there's a right answer. I think I put it like pricing anything, right? The the value that I put on 
any particular good or service or activity or animal or person, it's going to be very individualistic, very different from, from yours. And, and as a society, we have various tools where we try to aggregate people's preferences, you know, through surveys or whatnot to see what, what something's worth. It's something we try to do, say, when there are lawsuits going on or when there are treaties being done or you're trying to figure out whether you should save an endangered species. But it's turned out to be really hard to come up with good estimates of what, as a society, we think the value is of uh, a tiger or all tigers together. I think if you say it really clearly, look, there's there's a, a tiger and a random person uh, who lives in India, and we're about to shoot one of them. We only have one bullet. Who would you like us to shoot? I don't know. I'm not sure what most people would say. But that is a pretty direct way of getting at the question. Excellent. All right. We should sign off. Do you have anything else you want to say? It's good to be back on doing the FAQ stuff. <laughs> Let's do that more often. All right, Levitt. Nice to talk to you. Be well. Okay, take okay, care. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to our Frequently Asked Questions, and special thanks to Jay Jones, Bruno Heapers, Mike Moore, Ryan Lillywhite, Marvin Young, Jimmy Derringer, and Rob Eaton for sending in their questions on the next episode of Freakonomics Radio. If I asked you to guess the most trusted profession in America, what would you say? Uh, most trusted? The most trusted profession? I can't quite answer that. Maybe a coach? Construction worker. Pilots. Uh, Librarians. Nope, none of those. The answer? The most trusted profession, I would say nurses. I would say nurses. Correct. Nurses. For 15 years straight. So, in our next episode, we will talk about what nurses contribute to our healthcare system. So these effects are quite large. We'll hear about a national movement that's reimagining the role of nurses. The evidence seems to be that Increasing accessibility is actually getting better outcomes. And we'll hear how this movement is running into political and regulatory hurdles. I mean, it's just almost insane. (laughs) It's like putting the mafia in charge of the New York Police Department. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Eliza Lambert. Our staff also includes Allison Hockenberry, Merritt Jacob, Greg Rosalski, Stephanie Tam, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. The music you hear throughout the episode was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You should also check out our archive at Freakonomics.com, where you can stream or download every episode we've ever made. You can also read the transcripts, and you can find links to the underlying research. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. 
Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.